You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hey everyone! My name is Mon Christian. My name is Ruben. And we are the gays. Just kidding. We are from Two Gays and One Pug, also an English Bulldog podcast. We talk about true crime, mystery, ghost stories, conspiracy, maybe sometimes aliens. Oh, occasional chisme as well, or gossip about our daily lives. We release new episodes on Mondays. Don't forget Wednesdays too, because we also do mini episodes called What's the Chisme? Stories sent by you guys. A quick spoiler, have you ever heard of the Texas Slave Ranch or the Hello Kitty murder? Hit the subscribe button or whatever and start binging our episodes and listen to us make fun of each other. Bye. That's my line, bro. Oh, my bad. Wait, we're boyfriends. Hi, welcome back to the freshest episode of this hellish podcast. I'm Annie from Boston, Massachusetts, and with me as always is my partner in crime, Johanna in Vienna, Austria. Hello. Or servus, as we say here in Vienna. I love that your hello sounds like serve us. No, how are you? Just serve us. Strudel. Danke. (laughs) It actually comes from the Latin word servus, so the word for servant, and it actually means the exact opposite. It means I'm here to serve you or I'm (sighs) your servant. Damn German language. The beauty of servus is that you can use it for hello, for goodbye, and for holy fuck when you say na servus. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but enough with the history of European <laughs> greetings. You just heard two gays, one pack, hosted by Mon and Ruben and their pack Chicharona. And I love Chicharona and Salsa Verde, by the way. I have to say, I have to cook it again. Oh, no puedo comer chicharrón en comida. No está de acuerdo. I know, I'm not even going to try the Spanish anymore. It's been so long. Anyway, they also have an English bulldog, don't they, named Buster? Yeah, he's new. Their podcast is also fairly new. I think they started in January, but man, they have an output. They already have quite a few episodes out there, so you have a backlog. Please check them out. I just, I love their personalities. If you're looking for something fun, they are it. Fun. I haven't had a chance to listen to them yet, so I'm looking forward to hearing it. So this is our first episode in our second year, so to say thanks, we thought we'd start it off with a head-scratcher. Know how much you love those. Put on your thinking caps, because today we are going to be talking about the unsolved disappearances that occurred in Bennington, Vermont, mostly from 1945 to 1950. And this case has everything. Bigfoot, UFOs, a ghost town, MTV's Dan Cortez. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) A serial killer. Or does it? Yes, thanks to the New England author Joseph A. Citro, this phenomenon and the area is now widely known as the Bennington Triangle. Of course, this is following the world-famous term Bermuda Triangle, where, as we all know, it's said that ships and airplanes have been and are still vanishing into thin air, but that's for another day. Annie, have you ever been to Vermont? Many times. So my dad's mom's family are from that area. My dad went to Norwich University, as did his dad, who was the part, I think, of the last cavalry there. It's a military uh 
university. But as a kid, my family, along with a bunch of other families, we would rent this condo every year between Christmas and New Year. And it was great. We'd spend that entire week in a little town called Quichi, Vermont. And uh, you look back on it now and it was like, oh, those were the good times. It was like all the adults had the bedrooms and then the kids were just on sleeping bags and pull out couches on floors. We didn't care. And you could put your skis on. You could go outside, put your skis on and ski to the top of the little hill in Quichi and ski right down. And so you didn't even have to get in the car. You were just right there. So locals will know what I'm talking about when I say that I love to have lunch at Simon Pierce and then go to that giant antiques mall thing. And Quichi has a gorge. I feel like this is a travel ad for Quichi, Vermont, not like you need it. Also, when I met my late husband, uh, when I first met Adam, he had a share in a ski house at Killington. And I'm sure you must have ski houses like this for the Alps, like when a bunch of adults pay a ridiculous amount of money to rent a house for ski season and they sleep Mm -hmm. like summer camp. It's like, how much did you spend to what? Why? And then Paul and I go up there regularly in the fall for a leaf peep with a group of motorcyclists that he's known for forever. So yeah, I love Vermont. For all of our listeners outside the U.S. who might not know, like Massachusetts, Vermont is part of New England, which is the best part of the United States. I'm kidding. (laughs) It is a pretty sweet region, though. It's the Northeast, and it consists of the before-mentioned Vermont and Massachusetts, and also has Maine with, I mean, Maine. It's beautiful. All that rocky coast, Acadia, love it. My old roommates in Barhaba. Bahaba. Uh, New Hampshire, also lovely, also wonderful skiing, North Conway, and they have a funicular railway up Mount Washington. It's pretty amazing. Rhode Island, you can go see all the mansions. These are all things that we're going to do when you visit me. We'll go to Rhode Island, we'll go to Newport, and we'll tour the mansions. And um, Connecticut. Connecticut is also absolutely beautiful, and Mystic Seaport is lovely. They also have two of our favorite casinos. So, yeah, the second settlement in America was founded in New England, Plymouth. That was back in 1620. Although, I would say that unlike the first settlement at Jamestown, I don't think the Plymouth settlers ended up in a Donner Party situation. Not biased, just because I'm a Mayflower descendant. So, Vermont was first claimed by the French and became part of what was called New France. And for a long time, uh, the New England colonies and New France colonies pretty much battled it out over who owned more. Vermont was one of the four previous independent states, meaning independent before they joined the Union. The other three are Texas, California, and Hawaii. I did not know that about Vermont. (laughs) Neither did I until I started researching for this subject. It's great. (laughs) So yeah, Vermont joined the Union in 1791, and they are our second smallest state with roughly 9,600 square miles. So that seems to be about 25,000 square kilometers. And I looked up how it compares to Austria for you. So roughly Austria has 84,000 square kilometers. Mm -hmm. And that means that you could fit three Vermonts into one Austria. Good to know. Yeah. Thanks for converting everything (laughs) for me and our listeners outside of the US and the UK. (laughs) I now have a picture of the size of Vermont in my head. (laughs) Yeah, it's... Beautiful. I love Vermont. It has a lovely climate, mild summers, although it can be very hot during August. And I think up in northern Vermont, like by the Canadian border, you can get black fly season as well. But, you know, 
It's worth it for the colors in the fall are stunning. Rolling hills, covered bridges. It's very pastoral in places. So like very green rolling hills with cat dairy cows and, you know, fall foliage behind. The Ben and Jerry's factory is in Vermont. Sugar and Spice, which is one of my favorite restaurants where they give you real maple syrup for your pancakes or your waffles or your French toast. And you have to pay extra for the fake stuff, which I love because it's usually the other way around. Woodstock, Vermont is like something out of a movie. Uh, They also have the lowest crime rate, I believe. And since I started taking notes for this, uh, would Vermont, not Woodstock specifically, but Woodstock is also very safe. But since we started taking notes for this episode, all I'm getting now is Woodstock house porn, and I'm going to be sharing a bunch of it because <laughs> it's so pretty. I really want to go there now. Thank you. It sounds lovely. Is apple picking thing in Vermont. I think I remember that Ross and Chandler went apple picking to Vermont. <laughs> yes, it absolutely is. You can go apple picking here too. It's fun. We don't usually do it actually unless people come to visit us. But when we have guests that come in for the fall, we take them to one of these places where you can go apple picking and pick out your own pumpkin from the pumpkin patch for Halloween. So one of these Halloweens will have to get you to come here and we'll go do Salem and uh, we'll take a bunch of Valium and Paul will drive us to Salem so we can deal with the crowds. <laughs> But yeah, it's a lot of fun. And now I really want apple cider donuts. I would love it if we could just skip summer and get right to fall. Any thank you for painting this lovely picture of Vermont. So now we are going to where all of this takes place. Bennington, Vermont. Annie, have you been there? So I think I've driven through but never stayed. But now I'm worried my dad's going to call me to remind me about all the years we went there for vacation. But I think it's near... Uh, Where we used to live in Western Mass. So Bennington, Vermont is a town in south of Vermont, pretty much in the corner where Vermont borders on Massachusetts in the south and New York in the west. And it has a population of roughly 16,000 people, which actually makes it the most populated town in southern Vermont, which is amazing. <laughs> and it consists of three areas. That's North Bennington, Old Bennington and Downtown Bennington. And the town is located at the eastern edge of the Green Mountain National Forest. And the Appalachian Trail and the Long Trail, which was the inspiration for the Appalachian Trail, they both pass through Bennington. So everything that includes hiking is big in Bennington. Mm. But you can also visit the tallest man-made structure of Vermont, which is the Bennington Battle Monument, which has a height of 306 feet or 93 meters. There's no taller building than that in Vermont. There are beautiful covered bridges, uh, as Annie already mentioned, and you can go antiquing. It's one of my favorite things. So just perfect, typical Vermont loveliness. I'm always ready for that. Yeah, you can go antiquing and I'll go for a hike. Are you sure about that? <laughs> yeah, probably not. Um, yeah, I don't think it's the best idea to go hiking in Bennington, maybe if you... Yeah. <laughs> All right. So now we're going to get into the mysterious and slightly creepy stuff of this week's episode, which is the Bennington disappearances. And I think it's best if we start with the five cases that are considered canonical, and then we'll go through them one by one. Yeah, let's. That's a good idea. All right. So the first person to go missing was a man named Mitty Rivers, who was 74 at the time. He was an experienced hunting guide, so we can assume that he was familiar with the area around Bennington and that he knew his way around a forest. He was capable and spry for his age, but nevertheless, on November 12, 1945, Mitty was leading a party of four hunters who were visiting the area up the mountain. Apparently, that was somewhere around a place known as Hell Hollow. Hell Hollow is five miles northeast of Bennington 
Pennington and seven miles north of Glastonbury. We have to talk a little bit about Glastonbury, I think. So Glastonbury was founded in 1761 by the year 1791. So when Vermont joined the Union, there were only six families that lived in Glastonbury. It's a very remote area on rough terrain, even by Vermont standards. Life there was hard, and most of these families would leave Glastonbury at one point or another to try their luck somewhere else. They would be replaced, but most settlers didn't stay for long. But nevertheless, after the Civil War, the population grew slowly but steadily. A railroad was constructed, the steepest ever built in the United States, and it ran up the mountain to Glastonbury. Some parts of the tracks can still be seen. In 1880, Glastonbury had a population of 241, and that didn't even include the seasonal logging workers. However, in the late 1800s, they had used up most of the usable trees and people started to leave again. In 1889, the railroad stopped running, but they had another plan. In 1894, a hotel was built in the hope to attract tourists to the remote and beautiful area. The railroad once more started to operate, but it didn't last long. A flood destroyed most of the railroad tracks, and that was pretty much it for the mountain resort. Since then, Glastonbury is pretty much a ghost town and had kept a population of 1 to 16 people at most. We have lovely photos of tourists riding the trolley up the railroad and the hotel, and you'll find those in our Facebook group just like always. Okay, so... Mitty Rivers is leading his group of hunters around Hell Hollow, and around 4 p.m. on November 12, 1945, they're on their way back when Mitty was a bit ahead of them when just in the blink of an eye, he was gone. At first, the hunters thought he had just wandered off into the thicket, so they started calling his name, but he didn't show. Soon it was obvious that Mitty Rivers had indeed vanished. An extensive eight-day search was started. Newspaper articles stated that 500 men were looking for him. A local artist, a battalion of the National Guard, was involved and they even offered $4 a day for people helping to search for Mitty, but he was nowhere to be found. According to some of the sources, the only thing they found of Mitty in a stream was one of his cartridges from his hunting rifle, and that might have dropped out of his pocket. Nothing else was ever found of him. There are theories that he might have fallen into an abandoned well in the area, one that nobody, even the experienced Mitty Rivers, knew about, and that this was the reason why he was never found. He could have found his final resting place at the bottom of an old abandoned well. Don't you think it's amazing that they really tried so hard to find him, that they were even paying money for people who would help to search for him? I mean, this was a 74-year-old man in 1945. You would think people would not be so eager to find him. <sighs> I know that sounds horrible. <laughs> I hope you all know what I mean. I think what, I, what I'm trying to say, I think it shows what a tight-knit community this might have been, that they tried everything to find him. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think that it shows how well-respected he was. I think he was a really well-respected, well-known guide for hunters, too. So his disappearance is a very strange one to me. Yeah. So the second disappearance, I'd say this is the most famous one. And it took place around one year after Midi Rivers went missing. And it is the case of Paula Weldon. She was an 18-year-old student at the Bennington College. And on December 1st, 1946, so during Thanksgiving break, she decided to hike a part of the long trail. She informed her roommate about her plans, put on a bright red coat or red jacket, and was heading towards Glastonbury Mountains. Although I think she didn't enter the Glastonbury area as far as we know. Her roommate later stated that Paula had been in a bit of a strange mood, possibly because of a disagreement she'd had with her father lately, and most likely she wanted to take a hike to clear her head, which I totally get. I get my best ideas whenever I'm out walking the dogs. 
Oh, I get mine in the shower or if I'm too high. But that last one is like, it's 50-50 in terms of how good the ideas actually are. I think I, I message you a lot where I'm like, idea. <laughs> so back to Paula. So she was hiking, uh, she was heading towards the long trail or the part of the long trail she wanted to hike. And on the way, she stopped and asked a local newspaper employee she had encountered uh, for directions. And his name was Ernest Whitman. And he distinctively remembered the beautiful young girl because of her easy to spot red coat. But apparently he was not the only person who saw Paula that day. She was seen several times by several people on her way to the trail. I think she was even hitchhiking for a distance. Do you remember that? Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Super common at the time. And then on the trail, an elderly couple was also out there and they spotted the girl in the red coat approximately 100 yards or 90 meters ahead of them. Around 4 p.m. they saw her turning a corner, but when the couple turned around the same corner just... Minutes later, Paula Weldon was nowhere to be seen. Strange. When she didn't show up the next day, a massive search began. Paula's father was a very wealthy man from Connecticut. They even used a helicopter, which had never been done before in Vermont in a missing persons case. They searched all the way down south to Williamstown in Massachusetts. And of course, the media was all over this case. A pretty young girl from a wealthy family. She's gone missing without a trace. But nothing of Paula Weldon was ever found. There are some rumors, though... People think she ran away with her boyfriend and lived the rest of her life as a recluse in the Canadian wilderness, which, mm, mm, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> None of her friends knew anything about a boyfriend. Other theories state that she had some difficulties with her family or her father in particular and or that she suffered from depression. Unfortunately, these things have not been really looked into back then during the search for Paula. So all this is speculation, yeah. nothing else. All we know for sure is that she was a young and physically healthy person and that she disappeared without a trace. Yeah, there was so much criticism from her family, I think especially her father, about the way that the police handled the case, that this case is uh, one of the reasons that the Vermont State Police were created. So in this one, I don't think I don't think it was a suicide because she had asked other friends to go with her that day, but they all had plans. So... Don't you think that's a st like if you had plans to end take your life, you wouldn't? Yeah, but maybe, maybe it wasn't planned. Like oh. she was depressed, she had a bad time, she wanted to go hiking with her friends. Yeah, they couldn't come; they had plans themselves. And then she was out there, and then yeah, she decided it's it's possible. Yeah, it is. You're right because I think there is also an issue of just that spontaneous decision, right? You see, yeah, in some so, yep, that okay, so that's possible. I was always suspicious. There was a story of a lumberjack who lived uh, where she kind of went missing, fits with where she was last seen, and I think he even made false confessions. But because I think he just later said, "No, I was just joking," which I always find that <sighs> why is there always a guy? making jokes about killing a woman during the investigation. Do you know what I mean? Of a disappearance. Yeah. I feel like there's always that one guy who made false confessions and joked about it, whatever. I don't know. For attention. Yeah, sad. I just don't know if that's even a rumor, though, because it's just like nothing super concrete has ever been posted. So we know she was hitchhiking. It's possible that that went really wrong for her. The thing that's so strange to me is 100 yards is not that far. Yeah. It's really not that far. So where the hell did she go? Wearing a bright red jacket, right? Because even if she'd walked off into the woods, unless these are super dense woods, you'd still would have seen her. That's the part for me that's like, 
What happened? Also, did you know Shirley Jackson? She wrote The Lottery and The Haunting of Hill House. She lived in North Mennington, Vermont, and Paula Weldon's uh, disappearance was the inspiration for her second uh, novel, which was Hangs a Man, I think. I also read that this case was the inspiration for the movie What Lies Beneath with Michelle Pfeiffer and uh, Indiana Jones. (laughs) He's always Indiana Jones for me. I hadn't heard that. That's the one with the lake, right? Where they're the house on the lake? Oh. I saw that years ago. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch it. Okay. We now jump ahead three years, exactly three years, to the 1st of December, 1949, when the third person went missing. His name was James E. Tetford, and there are other spellings, lots of different spellings for his last name, which, you know how much we love that. So it's either Tedford, Tefford, or Tetford, but I think Tedford is the most commonly used one. This is the one where I always thought it was the most exciting and the most baffling, but is it really? (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I was so excited for this. And mm, Okay. So James Tedford was living in Bennington in the Vermont Veterans Home. The Veterans Home was opened in 1887, when after the Civil War, it was realized that there were a lot of veterans who needed help. I'd argue that's still the case. In any case, up until 1971, so also when Jim Tedford was living there, it was called the Soldier's Home. Some of them, I think, are still called the Soldier's Home, depending on what state you're in. Their services include nursing and medical care. They do have an Alzheimer's unit, social work, memory therapy, rehab, and end-of-life hospice care. It's essentially a nursing or rehabilitation home. So in 1949, James was living in the then still called Soldier's Home. He was a World War I veteran. I read somewhere in the late 30s, early 40s, he married a woman named Pearl, who was 20 years younger than him. I don't know how accurate this next part is, but I did read in one source that he also had served somehow in World War II as well. And maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But for whatever reason, he had left his home and his wife for a while. And when he returned, his wife Pearl had disappeared. Witnesses said the last time she was seen was when she was heading out to go shopping, but no traces of her had ever been found and she was never seen again. But I think it's quite possible that she just simply left and nothing sinister happened to her. So James moves to the veteran's home, but he had gone to visit relatives in St. Albans for a couple of days, maybe over Thanksgiving, which was on the 24th of November, so exactly a week earlier. Uh, St. Albans is a town 122 miles north of Bennington. I forgot to do the kilometers calculation there. So that would be about a two-hour drive, two and a bit, for the back roads north of Bennington. At the time of his visit, James Tedford seems to be depressed, and he actually didn't want to go back to Bennington. But he did. He got on the bus that was supposed to take him from St. Albans to Bennington. He was last seen in Burlington, where the bus had stopped for a quick break. We know that for sure, because Jim had run into an old acquaintance at the bus stop and told him he was heading back to Bennington. Supposedly, he got on the bus, but never arrived in Bennington. Or at least that's how I had always read it. Like, he was on the bus and then vanished. Yeah, that's how I always thought too. A man disappeared while being passenger on a bus. Like, the bus was driving and the man was just poof, poof, gone. Yeah. But was that what really happened? Because James was only reported missing by the veteran's home a week later. I guess they didn't exactly know when he was supposed to be coming back from his visit with his family, so nobody worried soon enough. And it was only when they called his family to say, hey, is he, we just want to see if he's coming back or if he's not, you know, we'll give his room to someone who needs it. And then all of a sudden they realized that he was missing. And now there's this lore of a man vanishing from his seat on a bus while it was driving toward Bennington. And I just, 
I don't know. It was exaggerated. We can't even say for sure that James Tedford ever got back on the bus in Burlington. I don't know. I wish I could say surprise. He was abducted by aliens, just got his ass teleported off a greyhound, which (laughs) living the dream. It reminds me of the Kate McKinnon skits for SNL that I'll post. But yeah, I just, I don't know. I I really thought it was going to be a lot clearer, like mystical alien activity. Yeah, this one was actually a a bit of a letdown while researching the Bennington Triangle. It's just this whole thing. Oh, the bus driver stated that he had seen him in a seat shortly before driving through the Bennington Triangle. Only his luggage and his open timetable was left on his seat. Yeah, I mean, the man wasn't even reported missing for over a week. So how likely is it that eyewitness reports are accurate? If they even happened like that, you know what I mean? It's quite possible that James wandered off in Burlington to commit suicide, for example. Or maybe he had an accident there. Or maybe he arrived in Bennington but didn't want to return to the veterans' home and he just wandered off somewhere into the woods or... I don't know. Yeah. Something like this. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. And the hardest part of this one, I think, is just how unreliable witness testimony is. It's shockingly unreliable. So mm. I'm not sure how much we can trust people who didn't know him saying he was definitely on the bus. You know? We are going to take a break here for a word by this week's sponsor, Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a fun, challenging puzzle game that you can play anywhere because you don't need Wi-Fi to play. Got a long plane trip coming up? Download Best Fiends. Going on a cruise and want to zone out a little with a game on your balcony with your morning coffee? Best Fiends. Do you have a surgery coming up? You know they're going to interrupt you constantly and you won't be able to sleep. But you can play Best Fiends. Is your routine colonoscopy right around the corner? Best Fiends will keep you company during that prep. Did that edible hit you just a little too hard? No worries, you've got Fiends. Have you just spent two hours looking at graphic crime scene photos? How about taking a break with your best fiends? But enough about me. Yeah, Best Fiends has updates every month with new challenges and rewards, so it never gets boring or repetitive. Finding new fiends is so much fun, and figuring out which combination of fiends to use to defeat the slugs is always a fun challenge. One of mine is now wearing a jaunty top hat. His name is Gene. He's the most charming centipede I'd ever encountered. I would die for him. I'm much better at Best Fiends than you are. I've just dedicated myself to it, Johanna, in a way that I feel you're not prepared to. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters, Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Now, on to our fourth disappearance, and it took place on 12th of October 1950, and it's the story of Paul Jefferson, who was eight at the time. He was riding with his mom in her truck, and she had to stop to feed some of their pigs, or pigs they took care for, it's a little bit unclear there. Uh, Paul stayed behind in the truck and was supposed to wait for his mom. As you all can guess by now, when his mom returned to her truck, one hour later, Paul was nowhere to be found. A search for the missing boy was started. The boy was wearing a bright red jacket when he disappeared. And you would think, again, that this would help in spotting the boy in the woods in October. But he was not found. The sheriff brought in bloodhounds to trail the boy's scent, which apparently they did for a couple of miles heading in the direction of Glastonbury Mountain, or so they say, to a local highway where the bloodhound lost the scent. The same highway that Paula Weldon had used to head to the long trail she wanted to hike, by the way. So it looks as if he was taken away from there by maybe a person in a car. But then what you should also know that before the bloodhounds were brought in, it started to rain heavily. There were even mudslides in the area and there's just no way of knowing if the bloodhounds just lost the trail because of the rain. Mm. 
Maybe he did wander off into the woods. I think it was Paul's father who stated that prior to his disappearance, the boy had talked about wanting to go to Glastonbury for some time. Mr. Jefferson had called it, quote, the lure of the mountain, end quote. So I don't know, was Paul curious about the so-called ghost town? He got bored in the car and decided to just hike there, not knowing how long and dangerous the hike would be. And then there is another popular theory that the family themselves was somehow involved, that they either did something to Paul or something happened, like an accident, and they covered it up and they fed him to the pigs. How often do people, do you think, get fed to pigs? Do you think it's super common? According to... That would very often. Yeah. Well, and also I was just already earlier today looking up the next case I'm going to do. And like four of the cases I was like sort of fast clicking through had feeding people to pigs in them. Yeah. It's just weird. Anyway. So this one is, it's just, it's sad, of course, because it's a kid. I think he wandered off and it's just, the thing is eight, it's their bait. You're such a baby at eight, but you're also at that age where you think you're an adult Do you know what I mean? Mm. And that you could go off in that kind of terrain on your own at that age is, I don't know. If it had been a hundred years earlier, an eight-year-old would probably be fine. He'd probably have like a knife on one hip and a gun on the other and, you know. All right. And then that brings us to, oh, what I think is maybe actually the creepiest of the cases. Yeah. So this is the disappearance of a 53-year-old woman named Frida Langer. This happened only 16 days after Paul's disappearance, so 28th of October, 1950. Frida was an experienced hiker and survivalist, and she was out on a trip with her husband and her cousin Herbert. They had set up their camp in the Somerset area of the Long Trail, which borders East Glastonbury. If I haven't mentioned before, a lot of places in New England have the same name as Old England and the rest of the UK, just as I'm throwing around places like Glastonbury and Somerset. These are in Vermont. So anyhow, Frida was out hiking that day with her cousin, not far from camp where her husband had stayed behind because he was having pain in one of his knees. So after about a half a mile from their camp, she slipped and she fell into a creek, which sucks. Obviously, she didn't want to continue her hike in wet clothing, especially as that time of year is chilly already, but probably freezing mm. with wet clothes. So she told her cousin she was going to head back to camp and change. Her cousin left Frida uh, about a hundred yards from the camp in an area all three of them knew very well and continued on his hike alone. When Herbert later returned to the campsite, he found out that Frida had never made it there and they started to search for her in the surrounding area. Over the next two weeks, a massive search ensued. 400 searchers, helicopters, even aircraft, once more the National Guard came in to help, but nothing was found. But then, seven months later, on May 12, 1951, hunters stumbled upon Frida Langer's body, or what was left of it, as it was already in a state of advanced decomposition. And where did they find the remains of Frida, you might ask? This is the part... That really freaks me out. It was in an area that had already been searched extensively after her disappearance. It was in an open area, not hidden somewhere. So how did the searchers miss her the first time? Is it even possible that they missed her? Unfortunately, due to the state the body was in, no cause of death could be determined. Was it an accident? Did she have another trip, fall, and she easily could have frozen to death in wet clothes in October in Vermont mm -hmm. at night? Or was there foul play? 
We will never know, but Frida Langer is the only canonical disappearance in the Bennington Triangle where a body has been found. And we keep talking about the five canonical cases that are tied to the Bennington area. That's because this is a remote area in the middle of nowhere, sort of. And so often there are a lot of legends and lore that surround the region. It's said that the area was considered cursed or unlucky by the native people who lived in the Green Mountains. And there are a lot of uh, stories about strange things happening in the Bennington Triangle. So if you're interested in these stories, you can find them in Joseph A. Citro's non-fictional books. Should we talk about theories now? Yes, we shall. Okay. Let's assume for a minute that all or at least some of these cases that happened over this period of five years are somehow connected. What could be the reason for five people vanishing and except for one never to be seen again? Now, one of the most popular theories is the one about the serial killer. Many believe that the area from Bennington up to Glastonbury was the hunting ground of an unknown serial killer. What could point in that direction were the close proximity of where all these cases took place and that it seems as if he was escalating in the end. But that's about it for the theory, I think. Yeah. The possible victims are just so very different. Okay, but let's assume it was uh, Israel Keys type of serial killer who didn't have a victim type. Rather, he took his chance when it presented itself. I still think it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, especially with Midi, Paula, Frida. All three were in very close proximity to other people when they vanished. Would the serial killer really take the chance? Yeah. It makes even less sense in the case of James. Yeah, yeah. What do you think? No, I agree. I think it's po it's possible that there was an opportunistic killer out there, but I don't know. A part of me thinks it's more likely that Mitty fell into a well and was like immediately killed or knocked out and then died. He's the man that's hired to show the hunters around, right? He had matches on him and a weapon. Yeah. It just seems like so unlikely that he would have gotten lost or abducted. So it's probably a well, but They searched the area so thoroughly. Now, if it was just like his three friends that had looked for him, then I would say 100%, I feel absolutely certain he fell into a well. But if they they know where he went missing, yeah. right? So I'm sure, I mean, assuming they led the searchers back to the place where he had last been seen, where did he go? How did they, do you know what I mean? It just seems like they would have found the well if there were, yeah. uh, so I'm going to say aliens, I think. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And then I would say Paula and Frida seem the most likely candidates for foul play, right? Paula, because she was hitchhiking, which was so mm -hmm. common back then, but we know how risky it is now. And then Frida. Frida's honestly the creepiest. She was so close to the camp when she went missing, and her body being found in an area that was already searched, that one bothers me. Like, he held on to her, watching, until, don't like that, that's creepy. Then we have the Bigfoot theory. So I don't know if all of you listening are aware, but I'm really interested and somewhat open to cryptozoology. So did Bigfoot or a Bigfoot-like creature take these five people? There have been Bigfoot sightings reported in Vermont, uh, including one known as the Bennington Monster that has been sighted since the 1800s. So it's possible. But I think this theory might go back to an unexplained death from earlier, back in 1943, uh, the death of Carl Herrick. He was out hunting with his cousin in the Glastonbury area when the two got separated. Carl was gone and he was only found after three days of searching. Unfortunately, he was dead. His body was found with his rifle resting against a tree and they said there were bear tracks all around him. But the weird thing was Carl's body showed no sign of a bear attack. 
You would think it would show bite marks or scratches, but there was nothing. But what the autopsy found was that he had been, in fact, squeezed to death. He had been squeezed so hard that his ribs had punctured his lungs. Could it be Bigfoot that cuddled Carl to death? I don't know. I really don't think so. No. Hmm. I'll admit, though, a swipe from a bear paw could break some ribs and puncture a lung. Wasn't that one also the reason for the theory about men eating rocks? Yeah, yeah. Not men, men who eat rocks, but rocks who eat men. Rocks who eat men. Yeah, that's... So I think it's a native legend, but you'd be standing on top of a boulder. And then this is a great legend. It's creepy as hell. And then the top would become like quicksand and you would disappear into the rock forever. Yeah. Oh, that's a good legend. That is disturbing to think about. Uh, next theory was the red coat curse. So many people believe that wearing the color red was what had all these people in common and what made them disappear. But as far as I found, and I think any, you don't know something else either about that, um, we only know for sure that Paula wore a red coat and probably Paul. But we don't know what color the other three missing people wore. Also, I have no idea about 40s fashion, but quite possibly red was a common color for outdoor jackets. It's easy to spot. Just like nowadays, all missing hikers would probably wear like reflecting Gore-Tex jackets. Mm -hmm. It's a popular theory, and I think wearing red to go hiking in the Bennington-Glastonbury area is still considered to bring bad luck to this day. That's what I read. Oh, right. So, yeah, I would have just thought that before the sort of day-glow orange or, you know, fluorescent-y, like you were saying, high-vis stuff, I think red would have just been a smart color to wear in the woods in Vermont so you didn't get mistaken for a deer and shot or a turkey. I think it's interesting that people have put so much stock in the red coat curse. If any of our listeners are from that area, is that really a thing, the red coat thing, or is that just something that the papers talk about? Because I'm curious about that. And that brings us to our next theory. And I'm not going to say for sure that it was aliens, but it was probably aliens. God, I really, I really <laughs> hope it was not aliens. So I'm not sure if you're all aware of it, but it seems that Vermont, a state that borders mine, has the highest number of reported UFOs in the United States per capita. So according to an article in USA Today, 2001 to 2015 sightings per 100,000 people was 80.8. Total sightings was 504, and they used the data from Cheryl Costa's UFO Sightings Desk Reference, United States of America, 2001 to 2015, Unidentified Flying Objects, Frequency, Distribution, Shapes, end quote, as a source. <laughs> That's a good source. It would explain how James Tedford disappeared from a moving bus <laughs> if... He indeed disappeared from a moving bus. And it would explain why Frida's body seemed to have placed at a spot after it had been searched already. Yeah, it would it would make sense. It would. Of course, also the local fauna was blamed. Uh, lynx, bears, bobcats, you name it. I don't know. I think if that would have been the case, there would have been something. The tiniest thing, the tiniest remain of a human, a torn yeah, piece of fabric, fabric. something. I don't know. I think, yeah, Paul's disappearance, see, this is where I don't know enough about the behavior of animals. If Paul, an eight-year-old child, had accidentally encountered a bear that was trying to prepare for winter, so they eat as much as they can, don't they, so that they've got enough fat stores to survive hibernation. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine that bears would be, and I don't know if this is true, but I would imagine that they would be particularly aggressive at the time of year when these things happened. And so I wonder, would a bear bring, bring a meal back with him? to its den. 
Do you know? I don't know if it's possible or yeah. not. But it doesn't explain everybody. Yeah, but still, there would be some clothes. Drag some... mart. Something. Yeah. Something. So this is what I'm thinking. I think that none of these cases are connected. Yeah. I think that Midi Rivers, I always want to say Muddy Waters. Oh, me too. Oh my God, that's funny. I'm amazed neither of us slipped up yet. So Midi Rivers had an accident, in my opinion. He might have fallen into a ravine or, as we said, an abandoned well. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's what happened. Or quicksand. Yeah. Paula might have wandered off and died either by accident or as part of a suicide plan. Same with James. Paul was either taken or wandered off and had an accident. I just don't have an idea for Frida. Did she fall somewhere and was covered up during winter and spring somehow brought her to light? Did animals drag her remains out? And I think they would only have found parts. I don't know. What do you think, Annie? I agree with you on all of that. I don't know. It's just, it's so creepy. Like I was saying before, in her case, to think if she was murdered, maybe by someone local who then helped in the search. And then once the search was over, moved her body back to the area that had been, that he had helped search. I don't know. Just that idea that there could be a a murderer living in a pretty small community Mm -hmm. and no one had any idea. I think that's a real possibility for a lot of these. Yeah. I don't know. I have the feeling that this is a mystery where we are such wet blankets. <laughs> we both ventured into this thinking, no, oh, this is a great mystery like the Dyatlov Pass. But in my opinion, there are just too many logical explanations that could have happened. I think this only becomes a mystery if you think all of these cases are connected to each other and to Glastonbury, which makes it a little bit more mysterious. I also have to mention, we are aware that there is this whole uh, people disappearing in national parks thing Oh, I don't yeah. know if uh, David Politis is, is big in that. I think we will talk about this in later episodes. And maybe then I change my mind. I don't know. Yeah. But for now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, unless they can prove the existence of the Bennington monster, in which case I'm sold. They're all connected. It was Bigfoot and the aliens working together. <laughs> yeah. This reminds me, too. I need to do the Bridgewater Triangle. But I think the Bridgewater Triangle is going to be another one of like... I think it's got a little bit to do with satanic panic and a little bit of cryptozoology and a little bit of UFO stuff. That's in Massachusetts, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. But it's the other. And I honestly, I've heard it mentioned. I, don't, I just don't know that much about it. It's, there's a lot of these things that it's it's like, I feel like I should. Well, now I'm learning about it and taking you all with me. So We have yeah. so many years ahead of us doing this. We had um, Paul's cousin, Tanya. Hi, Tanya. Uh, she listens to the show and she was in town with her partner last night. And uh, we were just talking about Dyatlov. And I was just saying to her, yeah, the good thing about it is we're never going to, unfortunately, we'll never run out of topics. Yeah, so, that's true. Tell me you're something good this week. My Something Good This Week is one of my favorite authors. So all this talk about New England made me think of him. And it's John Irving who wrote a couple of my favorite books. I think it's my second favorite book after Radetzky March by Josef Roth. And that has to be Owen Meany by by John Irving. Oh, no way. Okay. So A Prayer for Owen Meany is also one of my favorite books of all time. My dad gave me a copy when I was, I think I was in high school. And ever since I've been trying to find him a stuffed taxidermied armadillo. (laughs) I can't believe we have the same like favorite book. I love that. We both love Gloria. Yes. We both love Owen Meany. Owen Meany. It was destiny that we met. It it was. I know it's not set in Vermont. It's New Hampshire. Like most of his books are, I'd say that's close enough to be mentioned here. I just love this book. It's especially the ending. 
I won't spoil for those of you who want to read it. Yeah. I also love Garb, Cider House Rules. Yes. Thinking of Garb, what I just remember that doesn't only take place in New England, but also Vienna plays a huge part in some of John Irving's books. Yes. That's funny, yes. isn't it? I love it. If you had told me that I would have a friend I met online who lived in Vienna who also loved John Irving, I would, yeah. Life is weird, isn't it? Oh, It's very weird. It's Let's great. hear something good. It's good stuff. I got a uh, good report from my surgeon. So uh, I'm cleared to use the hot tub again, which is exciting because it's the only place I'm not in pain. Yeah. So really happy about that. And then another something good. I feel like there's already kind of a little bit of a travel element to our show because there's so many places that we've been to and we want to go to. And I really do sincerely want to recommend the great state of Vermont to our listeners. No trip to New England is complete without it. I'm actually much more of a fan of towns and villages than I am cities. I don't know about you. Yeah. You know, there's going to be lots of things to do in Vienna that my next 10 visits will still be looking at things in Vienna. But I love small towns, you know, villages. It always makes me sad when people from other parts of the world come to the United States and they go to New York City and then they fly home and that's it. I think the best part in the United States that you have is the nature. Yeah, there's a lot of it. I think driving around in the States and experience the nature and the smaller villages, is it's the best. Yeah, it is. And Vermont is just like one lovely small town after another. Um, just skiing and all manner of snow, snow sports in the winter, leaf peeping in the fall. I've added Moonlight in Vermont to the Fresh Hell playlist on Spotify that we have that I made you for your birthday, but everybody can listen to it. But I, I used the Willie Nelson version because I was a little high at the time and it made me laugh. <laughs> I like Willie Nelson. He's the best, isn't he? Also, if anyone knows where I can get a nice stuffed armadillo for my dad, please send me a message because I'm still on the hunt. Yeah. Yeah. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Twitter, please. Like our Facebook page. Join our Facebook group and let us know what you think of the Bennington Triangle. Yeah. What do you think it was? I bet we'll have a big mix. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. But yeah, we can't wait to see you in the Facebook group. And if you could please leave us a review, if you could take a moment. It really does. It helps people find us. It's basically the way that Apple decides if they're ever going to put you on a list or a, hey, you might enjoy this podcast. It's how other people find us. So if you like us, please leave us a review. All right. We're looking forward to seeing you again next week. And until then, if you're going through hell, keep going. Tschüss. You can do it. Bye.